I thought I'd... Am I on? I thought I'd do a Wizard of Oz and uh, preach from behind here. Is that okay? Do you mind? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I nearly jumped up after Sandy because uh, I had a very similar experience when we were down in Hastings. Uh, a, a retired couple um, used to disappear off for the, a winter to go to Spain for three months. And when they came back, I just bumped a hint to him as we were having coffee after the meeting. And he said to me, oh, he said, uh, Kevin, he said, how's, how's your daughter Claire? Um, you know, is, she's, is she in Ghana at the moment? What's happening with her? And so I just explained. And, and he said, and, and Tim, and uh, he said, isn't he? He's in Brighton, isn't he? How's, how's he doing? And so I was telling him about Tim. And, and he said, and Simon, and I said, how do you know so much about my family? He said, I pray for them every day. And it just really hit me. But I tell you what, I have never forgotten that. And the encouragement of knowing that there's somebody praying consistently for me and my family is just wonderful. And it's just such an encouragement. So good, good work. Well done, Sandy. Uh, Tim gave us an excellent introduction last week to our new series on Mission Continued. And I shall be following on from where... Tim finished in Acts, so uh, if you've got a Bible or a phone or an iPad or whatever it is you use, if you can find Acts 16. I'm going to have uh, two sort of sections to this preach. First, we're going to look at the passage and pick out some things that hopefully will help to look at the bigger picture of what's going on. Then we'll dig down into one particular topic from the passage, and that's baptism. Like Tim, I also like maps. Uh, so let's look at where Paul and Silas have travelled and where they are now. So, I've got, and I've got one of these thingies, it's great. I don't get to use this very often. They started here in, in Antioch, and they travelled round through to Derby and Lystra, all the way around here, and you remember they wanted to move into these areas, but for various reasons, God wouldn't let them. And so they, they skirted around here and they came to Troas. And that's where we pick up the story uh, this morning. And when they were at Troas, uh, if Luke had been writing Acts now, he would probably have said something like, they arrived at Troas, which is just north of Lesbos, where Josie and Izzy have been recently, working with refugees. As you can see, I don't know whether you can see, but I'll, I'll use my little thingy again. <laughs> Troas is up there. There's Lesbos there. It's very close. I know it's quite a small map, but it's still relatively close. So we'll pick up the story at verse 8. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, there's a significant difference between the narrative of verse 8 and verse 10. Luke turns from writing in the third person, they, to the first person, we. So Luke joins the party at Troas. We don't know why, but look out for when he disappears again. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. I think we often take for granted the travel that we read about in the Bible. From Troas to Neapolis was about 130 nautical miles, and it took them two days. I'm not a sailor, but I understand for those days that was pretty good going. Pliny the Elder, there's probably only one person here who would smile when I say that, and she did. Thanks, Becky. <laughs> Pliny the Elder, who was a Roman author, philosopher, a naval commander uh, in the Roman Empire, and a contemporary of Luke and Paul. He was born about 23 AD, died 79 AD. So he was around when this was happening, what we're reading now. He quotes in his writings very similar sailing times with favourable winds. So they had a favourable wind taking them from Troas across to Neapolis. And even when they arrived at Neapolis, they still had a 10-mile walk to Philippi. That's the equivalent of walking from here to uh, Rygate, or to Purley, or to Seal, you know, the other side of Sevenoaks, or even to East Grinstead. That's quite a long way, isn't it? Quite a trek. Let's keep reading. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshipper of God, was listening. It's likely that there was no synagogue in Philippi, which is why they went looking for a place to pray. They met a businesswoman, Lydia, who may not actually have been called Lydia. If we look at the map again, and I'll get my little thingy out. This is so exciting. Thyatira is there, and that area was uh, an ancient kingdom called Lydia. She came from that area. Now, she may have been called Lydia, but you know how it is how you know, we've, we've got surnames Potter and Miller, and they come from an age when people were potters and millers, and that's how they were known. Uh, and so it's possible that Lydia was just known as coming from the kingdom of Lydia. She was a Lydian, perhaps they called her. Thyatira 
was a town renowned for dyes. And there was even a guild of dyers in the town. Lydia, perhaps, was uh, an agent uh, in Macedonia for a manufacturer back home. Let's read on. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's thought that Lydia was the first convert in Europe, although there is some conjecture that Luke may have been a resident of Philippi. But certainly she's the first recorded convert uh, in Europe. And now there's a break in the narrative. We don't know how long for, but possibly a week later, maybe longer, uh, on the Sabbath. It says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. It's interesting to read what prompted Paul to command the spirit out of this girl. The word here, the Greek word, diaponio, can mean troubled or disturbed in spirit, annoyed, but probably in the context implies worn down by or the end of one's tether. I find this encouraging because although we would all want to live the way that Jesus did when he said in John 5, the son only does what he sees the father doing. We don't always get it right. Paul himself reminds us in Romans 8 that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. We don't know whether Paul was spot on in his timings or if God had to recover the situation. But let's read on and see what happens. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. There's a nice little literary juxtaposition here. And I like things like that. In, in, I like words. And it, but it doesn't really show up in the English. Luke uses the same word, exelthon, in Greek, when Paul commands the spirit to come out. Then notes that the spirit came out, and in verse 19, that the prophet went out. It's the same word. F.F. Bruce comments, when Paul exorcised the spirit that possessed her, he exorcised their source of income as well. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe. 
being Romans. The slave owners were, were very clever here as they concealed their real reason for being angry, i.e. that they had lost their income, and focused on the Roman law, which was that a Roman citizen may not practice any alien cult that didn't have the sanction of the state. But custom actually allowed it if it didn't offend the laws and usages of Roman life. But the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. One thing to note, someone's not with them. Luke, he's no longer in the first person. He wasn't thrown into prison with them. Paul's letter to the Colossians tells us that Luke was a doctor. So maybe he was on call that day when Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. He was where with them when they met the slave girl for the first time because he still says we, but by now he's not there. You could understand if Silas might have been a bit miffed with Paul. Why couldn't you control your temper? But that's not what we find. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, <clears throat> so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. I learnt a new word when I was preparing for today. I may not say it right. Metonymy. Anyone know that word? Oh, <laughs> I had a feeling well done. Yes. Metonymy. It means a figure of speech that consists of the use of the name of one object or concept for that of another to which it is related. So, the famous phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword, actually means the written word, the pen, 
is mightier than force, the sword. We might say he's addicted to the bottle. What we mean is alcohol. Or a journalist might say we're waiting for an announcement from Downing Street or the palace. They don't actually mean that Downing Street suddenly is going to get a voice and speak. They mean from the government or they're talking about the palace. They mean from the royal family. We do the same when, we, when we're going to church. We actually mean we're going to a place where we'll all meet with the church, i.e. the people of God. The example of metonymy in the passage we've been reading is house or household, oikos in the Greek, where the jailer probably meant his immediate family and possibly servants and slaves. With Lydia, we don't know if she had family in Philippi, but it would almost certainly have included servants. If you were around the church in the 70s, you would probably have heard the word oikos quite frequently. Then it was used to identify this group of people around you with whom you could have influence for the gospel. Your oikos group. We're going to stop our reading there, but it's worth noting that in verse 40, when Paul and Silas, after they'd been released from prison, they returned to Lydia's house and saw the brethren there before continuing their journey. So it may be that there was a bigger gap between Lydia being saved and them encountering the slave girl, at least enough for a group of believers to start gathering. And Luke is left behind as the narrative continues in the third person until Acts 20, when Paul returns to Philippi on his third journey and Luke joins him on the return trip to Troas, which is about four years later. What can we learn from this broad overview of this passage? Well, I think several things. You don't have to travel to affect the nations. Lydia was an Asian living in Europe, living in Philippi. Now, we know actually Paul and Silas did travel, but she'd already travelled. And, you know, if you walk down the high street of Oxted, maybe not today, but on other days, you will see many different nationalities. Even, I mean, let's just a show of hands. Who was not born in England? Yeah, look, I mean, that is quite a percentage. Now, Tim would probably say, you know, that's not an adequate, you know, source of gathering that sort of information and you can't rely on it, you know. But I think that's a pretty good indication that you don't have to travel to affect the nations. Business people are open to the gospel. We can be taken in by an outward appearance of smartness and efficiency and think that that's reflected inside. You know, if you got the train in the rush hour up to London, you'd see a whole group of people who look very smart, very together, you know, they're set there very relaxed reading their newspaper or they've got their laptop doing some work. They seem like they're, you know, they've got it all sorted. But that's not always the case inside. And Lydia, 
as a businesswoman. She was open to the gospel. Religious people are open to the gospel. Lydia was a worshipper of God, but didn't understand the gospel. We can easily dismiss those who are religious and fixed in their views, thinking, you know, we've got to have such a a weight of knowledge to be able to come against what they believe. But Lydia was a worshipper of God and was willing to hear the gospel as Paul shared it. I like this one. Salvation is God's responsibility. It was the Lord who opened Lydia's heart. And it was Paul's responsibility to share the gospel. And that's how it works. Isn't that good? That's such a good truth to know. You know, yes, it's our responsibility to share the gospel. But it's God's responsibility to open a person's heart. And he is the one who saves people, not us. So, yes, we can share the gospel, but we don't need to get all tied up with, ah, they didn't respond, they didn't, ah, well, they walked away, they rejected me. It's fine, because God's got it in hand. Our responsibility is just to share it. A changed life isn't always received positively. The slave girl was released from bondage, but not everyone was pleased. Certainly not least the slave owners. Her, you know, they, were, they lost their income. But the reaction of the crowd was significant. When they, those slave owners, they brought Paul and Silas before the magistrates. It would have been you know, sort of in the center of town, probably, uh, is it the Agora, where you know, that, was, that was where things like that were done. It wasn't like in the court. It was right in the open. And the crowds responded They weren't happy. Who knows why, but they weren't happy about that girl being released. Suffering is not a punishment, but an opportunity. Whether or not Paul and Silas landed in prison because Paul lost his rag is not the point. The point is that Paul and Silas focused on God rather than feeling sorry for themselves. They were in prison. They'd been beaten. They got their feet in stocks. And at midnight, they probably couldn't sleep because of the pain, but they were praising God and singing hymns. Be prepared to share the gospel at any time, even after an earthquake. You know, there are times when people experience tragedies, And we keep quiet. Yes, we need to be sensitive, but sometimes they're great opportunities for sharing the gospel. And, all right, Paul was sensitive. He didn't just blurt it out. He waited for an opportunity when the jailer said, what what must I do? What's going on? And often people, when they experience tragedies, will say, why me? That's a great question to answer. Staying is as important as going. Luke probably stayed in Philippi for four years. We don't know that, but he was there four years later when Paul came through. And the church was sufficiently established to warrant a letter from Paul 
later on. Be relaxed about joining in for a while and then changing course or direction. Luke joined Paul in Troas, travelled to Philippi and stayed there. Maybe only for a few weeks they were together and then stayed as Paul journeyed on. There's no indication in any of Paul's writings that he considered that Luke let him down by staying there. And we do see in Paul's writings that there are times when he does feel he was let down and he makes that clear. We can often feel that commitment to something is for life. And it's not wrong to stick with something for life as long as that's what God is indicating you should do. Now let's dig down a little bit into this passage and look at baptism. Both Lydia and the jailer were baptised after responding to the gospel. So what is baptism? Well, actually, let me start with the negative. It's not salvation. Being baptised doesn't save you. It's clear throughout the New Testament that salvation comes through faith in Jesus and what he has done to break the hold that sin has over us and to present us clean and righteous before the Father. And in the passage we read, Paul's response to the jailer was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. So what is baptism? Well, first, it's a declaration. It's the declaration of something that has already happened. It's a bit like a wedding ring. This ring doesn't make me married but it does declare that I am married. Our son, Tim, has a tattoo under his wedding ring. And when he told us and showed us, we were slightly puzzled because you can't see it. (laughs) Um, And we thought, well, isn't that the point of having a tattoo, you know? Um, But he said he often takes his wedding ring off because he does quite a lot of sport and he's also a drummer and he finds it catches on his, his drumstick. And he didn't want, as it were, to declare something that wasn't hit the case. So by having the tattoo there, it looks like a wedding ring. He wants to maintain that declaration that he's married. Baptism is also identification. The word baptise in the New Testament was one that Lydia would have been very familiar with. It was used to describe how cloth was immersed into a dye. It had to be fully immersed for the dye to affect every part of the cloth. And in baptism, going into and out of the water is a great identification or a demonstration of Jesus going into death and then rising again. So in baptism, we identify or associate with the death and resurrection of Jesus and acknowledge that as believers, we are dead to sin and raised to new life in Christ. It's worth making mention here of infant baptism. The two passages we've read about Lydia and the jailer are often used in support of infant baptism. When I was at Bible college, I heard, to be honest, a really bad sermon 
supporting infant baptism, which basically quoted these passages and said, well, there were bound to be children in the household, so Paul condoned infant baptism. And I thought, that's not a great argument, really. I found a much better defence of infant baptism from a Presbyterian pastor called Kevin DeYoung from Matthews, North Carolina. He says this, We do not believe that there is anything magical about the water we apply to the child. The water does not wash away original sin or save the child. We do not presume that this child is regenerate, although he may be. Nor do we believe that every child who gets baptised will automatically go to heaven. We baptise infants not out of superstition or tradition or because we like cute babies. We baptise infants because they are covenant children and should receive the sign of the covenant. And he's talking about God's covenant with Abraham that required all male children to be circumcised. This is referenced in Romans 4 by Paul, where he makes clear that Abraham was justified by faith while uncircumcised. And so his circumcision was a sign of faith. Similarly, baptism doesn't save you. It's a sign of your faith. So the argument goes that baptism has replaced circumcision in the new covenant. Infants were circumcised, so infants should be baptised. There are two problems with this. One is that there is no indication anywhere in the New Testament that baptism has replaced circumcision. And specifically in Acts 15, just before the chapter we read, the Council of Jerusalem met to determine whether new believers should be circumcised. And they agreed that it wasn't necessary. But there's no mention that baptism replaced it. They put out an edict to the churches to say, you do not need to be circumcised as a new believer. You'd have thought that they'd have said, but baptism replaces it. But they didn't. They said... Abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and abstain from fornic fornific fornication. Fornification. <laughs> Whatever it was, they didn't want you to do it. <laughs> but they didn't, they didn't talk about baptism. And the other point is that we're now living after the cross in the new covenant, which is quite different to the old. John Piper puts it much better than me. He says... The church is the new covenant community. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, we say, when we take communion. The new covenant is the spiritual work of God to put his spirit within us, write the law on our hearts, and cause us to walk in his statutes. It is a spiritually authentic community. Unlike the old covenant community, it is defined by true spiritual life and faith. Having these things is what it means to belong to the church. Therefore, to give the sign of the covenant, baptism, to those who are merely children of the flesh and who give no evidence of new birth or the presence of the Spirit 
or the law written on their heart or of vital faith in Christ is to contradict the meaning of the new covenant community and to go backwards in redemptive history. And that's not to say we practice adult baptism. We don't. We practice believer's baptism, which is quite different. Our daughter, our eldest daughter, Claire, gave her life to Jesus when she was four. And at that age, it was difficult to determine whether she evidenced new birth or the presence of the Spirit in her life. But by the time she was seven and demonstrating a life given to Jesus, filled with the Spirit, sharing words of knowledge on a Sunday in CCK and seeing people healed, it was clear she was a child of the new covenant and so she was baptised. Baptism is also about obedience. It's an act of obedience to the command of Jesus in Matthew 28. Jesus commissions the disciples and us to make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it goes on, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And that's what Peter does on the day of Pentecost. He ends his impromptu sermon with these words, repent and let each of you be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter had no time to prepare that sermon. It can only have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a consistency here. Jesus said to his disciples, the Holy Spirit spoke through Peter, and throughout the New Testament, baptism is linked to faith. In baptism, we follow Jesus' example. Jesus was baptised by John, even though he didn't need to for the forgiveness of sins. But he said to fulfil all righteousness. And finally, baptism is part of the package. Throughout the New Testament, salvation and baptism are found together. Not least in the passages that we've read this morning with both Lydia and the jailer being baptised after they came to faith in Jesus. And to that extent, it's a sign of the covenant. In three weeks' time, we will be having baptisms here on Sunday, the 8th of October. There are some of you who know that and are thinking about being baptised. I'd say to you, if you're a believer and you've not been baptised then get baptised in three weeks' time. Parents. I'm not looking over that way. Give me this way. Parents, a word to you. I think some of you who are thinking and maybe even stating, saying out loud, that your children are too young to be baptised, ask yourself, have they made a commitment of faith in Jesus are they able to acknowledge that they've made a commitment of faith in Jesus and is there any evidence of that faith in their lives 
And it wouldn't be inappropriate for you to ask their children's leaders or their youth leaders, if that's the age group they're in, because they may well see evidence of faith in their lives that isn't so easily seen at home. And if so, talk to them about being baptised. And if they are asking you, don't stand in their way. Some of you are worried that you will be asked to give your testimony in front of the whole church. That is not a requirement of baptism. If you want to, that's fine, but you don't have to. We love hearing testimonies, but it's not a requirement. You may like to consider a video testimony. Record it in the comfort of your own home, and then we can watch it without your embarrassment of having to stand up here in front of everyone. But you don't even have to do that. You could just be baptised. You would just have to answer three simple questions. Something like this. Have you put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? And you'd have to say, I have. Do you turn away from sin in your life? And you'd say, I do. Have you made Jesus Lord of your life? And you'd say, I have. And we baptise you. Simple as that. So what about if you were baptised as a child? Maybe even confirmed when you were old enough to acknowledge that you had become a Christian. Well, I would say simply, without wishing to undermine or dismiss those who support infant baptism, that to follow the biblical example is to get baptised after you became a believer. If you've not been baptised as a believer, then you should. And you would be similar to those early believers in Ephesus that we find in Acts 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptised? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptised with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Those people had not been... Those, sorry, those people had been baptised before, but not as a result of trusting Jesus. The basic message of this passage, of Acts and the New Testament in relation to baptism is, if you're a believer, have placed your trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, then you should be baptised. And if you haven't, you can do so on the 8th of October in three weeks' time. Now, I've not read, I'm not even sure there is a record of baptisms here, but I've not read it. I don't have access to that information. So I, I have no idea, looking out here, who has been baptised and who hasn't. So if you feel that I've been speaking to you or I've been looking at you more often than I might have been looking to somebody else, then it's probably God just pinpointing baptism 
for you. And uh, I'd, I'd like us to finish with some songs that just allow us to focus on God, to hear what he might be saying to us. Um, and Tim's going to come and tickle the ivories again. Um, but while he's getting ready, I'd like to do something unusual. I'd like you to close your eyes, if you would. And if you've not been baptised as a believer, then as an indication that you are willing to consider that this might be the next step for you, I'd like you to raise your hand. Thank you. There's a great opportunity in three weeks' time for you to respond to what God has been saying to you today. So if you put your hand up, please, uh, I, I would say come and talk to Tim rather than to me because Liz and I are just going off on two weeks' holiday tomorrow and so we won't be around very much. But Tim's here. Have a chat to Tim afterwards and... Uh, he would like to talk to you a little bit more about what it means and your situation to be baptised. Uh, but I'm really excited about what is going to happen in three weeks' time because we're going to hear testimony of people's lives who've been changed and responding in obedience to what God is saying. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to say very much because I'll faint if I stand here too long. <laughs> but if there's anyone really struggling about being baptised as an adult, um, I'm quite happy to speak to them and tell them what happened with me. So it's Linda. I'm in the um, book somewhere, but my phone number is no longer my phone number, so uh, don't try and ring it. Mm -hmm. but, um, <laughs> if anyone ever wants to speak to me in the next few weeks, if they're not sure, um, as I say, I'm quite happy to have a chat and just say what happened to me. Brilliant. Thanks, Linda. <laughs> Linda, <clears throat> Linda shared her testimony uh, on Tuesday night in, our, in the prayer meeting, and it fitted so well that I said to her, would you mind sharing it? And she was so nervous that I thought, I won't ask. But it's a great testimony, and particularly relates to those who have been baptised as an infant. I would definitely encourage you to talk to her. That sounds good.